Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to have those, and we'll pray for you this coming week. We live in a pluralistic society, which means there are lots of religions, and where one religion is considered by many to be just as good as another. Uh, For many, it would be fine if religion disappeared altogether. Um, there were, those were certainly the thoughts of the longtime atheist and former Muslim, Ayan Hershey uh, Ali, and recently she revealed that she's now a Christian. And um, I'm grateful for her testimony and for God's grace in her life. She was um, sexually mutilated as a girl growing up in Somalia and um, just migrated to Europe and embraced um, the atheistic worldview and was a politician in the Netherlands for some time and then came uh, stateside. And recently she announced that the, the components of atheism do not equip you for the challenges of this world. She said um, that she is committed to combat Islam and authoritarianism and woke ideology. In her testimony, I still have a great deal to learn about Christianity She wrote in an essay published, I discover a little more at church each Sunday. But I have recognized in my long journey through a wilderness of fear and self-doubt that there is a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. Praise be to God. May more and more follow. And may she continue to learn every time she goes to church like we need to. So in one sense, we're not advocating for a religion Um, a cafeteria-style religion. Uh, Just because a person has spiritual desires doesn't mean that their worship is right. I do find it interesting and would want to make clear that even as Baptists, we we hold to religious liberty. What does that mean? Well, God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And so Baptists have never been after a state religion. In fact, in our statement of faith, Uh, We believe that the state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of spiritual ends. And so when we talk about living in a pluralistic society, we want to have the freedom to advocate for Jesus Christ. And in our statement of faith, it also says that a free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And so whenever I speak in these terms, I'm referring to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Because when you live in a pluralistic society where many, there are many religions, often the unforgivable sin is for you to make any exclusive claims at all or to say that anybody else is wrong. But you can't be a Christian and not say that, not with a clear conscience. Just because a person has spiritual desires doesn't mean that it is right worship. Sincerity and devotion and external uh, performance does not equal the truth. You can be sincerely wrong. You can have a misplaced devotion. And you can be given to a pharisaical presentation of outward religion without a change of heart. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. What do you mean? They're offering sacrifices, God. Yeah, but you can offer sacrifices and it still be an abomination. The proverb goes on to say, But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. Who's upright? Now that is the question, isn't it? It's not us in and of ourselves. We are a people of, in need of God's grace. We are sinners that have fallen short of God's glory. We would, would never enter into heaven or be acceptable to God based upon our good works. 
We look early in the Bible to see Cain and Abel, Cain offering uh, an offering of uh, a sacrifice of the flesh as he offers uh, the fruit of the land. It is Abel who offers in faith a sacrificial animal, and God had regard to Abel's offering, but did not have regard to Cain's. And so in the climate of pluralism and multiple religious offerings, perhaps the worst sin that you can commit is to claim that your religion is the only way to God. And I mean that in just a secular usage of religion. But that is really precisely the message of Christianity, isn't it? And it is the message we need to take to our family and friends and neighbors and to the nations. Christianity proclaims an exclusive Savior. And in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we gather to worship on this Lord's Day to remind ourselves we must look to Him. We must trust Him. We must follow Him. We must live for Him with all of our heart and soul and mind of strength and strength. When we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to saving faith in Christ, our standing in Him is the basis for the promises that God gives to every believer. Our standing in Christ is the reason we can count on them and rest in them and stand upon them. And really at the heart of why we could never say Christ is one of many ways to what you consider to be God. We can never say that. Not to the one who came and who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 8, as we have seen, is filled with comforting promises. We've been in Romans 8 a long time. You've been troopers. And we continue to press on because there's more. The, The chapter ends with an incredible word of hope. It is filled with comforting promises and confidence building claims for those who trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that He's your trust. I pray that He's your hope. The Apostle Paul concludes this chapter with the blessed assurance of God's work for us in Christ and God's love for us in Christ. And he does so with a rhetorical flourish by asking a series of questions. I put them in the insert that it might be helpful to you. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, how will he not give us all things? Verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn us? And then verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of of Christ? These are wonderful questions and the answers we feel in the way Paul asks them, that there's certainties for us. John Stott says, Paul hurls these questions out into space as if it were defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them. But there is no answer, for nobody and nothing can harm the redeemed people of God. One commentator writes of this closing section, Paul puts his rhetorical medal to the homile- excuse me, his rhetorical pedal to the homiletical medal uh, in this passage. And uh, these final verses in Romans 8 are really uh, hymn-like in describing God's love for us. So would you come with me in the next couple, over the next couple of weeks as we look at this section of Scripture and really just kind of take it in for yourself 
as a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you're outside of Christ, that this would be a compelling message for you. I need to be in Him. I need to be found in Him. So no matter what we face in this life for the believer, no matter what we face in this life, we can be assured that God is for us, and therefore there is nothing strong enough to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So let's begin with what I think Romans 1 through 8 is all about, and I promise I won't preach the whole thing again. I'm just wanting to hold up one of the reasons I think Romans was written is, that, is so that you and I would cherish the gospel. He says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Well, what things? Well, we could go back to chapter 1, verse 16, it says, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We could go to chapter 5 where many commentators think this is referring back to chapter 5 because many of the same themes are there where Paul talks about being justified. We We have peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What shall we say to these things? Many commentators point to the immediate context of chapter 8. In verse 26, we learn that the Holy Spirit who dwells within the believer intercedes for us. He prays for us. He takes our groanings and intertwines them and takes them to the throne of God that we might know the will of God. When soul-crushing experiences come into our life, we have a comforter. In Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, everything works together for good for those who love Him. And I'm not saying that we should throw that out callously when someone has just been dealt a devastating loss, but I preach it on days like today so it'll be in your heart and in your mind that no matter what may befall you, you you can be assured that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. He says, we know this. How? When do we cling to Romans 8.28? In the worst moments of life. May we be reminded of these promises. All things work together for good. Wait a minute, what about evil? What about pure evil? God says, you're right, it is evil. It's absolutely evil. It's an abomination to me. But even those things, I'm working together for good for those who love me. Not all things have a bright side, do they? Not all clouds have a silver lining. They don't. But even in circumstances like those, we can be assured that God's working in them. Maybe you're saying, well, how how do we know that? I I often come back to this because I don't want us to ever forget it. I think it's the strongest argument for the Christian faith that God entered the suffering of this world in the person of His Son who experienced all the cruelty, all the abandonment, all the suffering. And God was working in him in that shameful moment on the cross in order that his mercy might might come to us. He works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. Psalm 119 verse 91 says, By your appointment, Lord, they stand this day for all things are your servants. God is able to do all these things, even in the worst things, even in evil things. By the way, I would say this promise is exclusive, Romans 8.28. 
And as we're cherishing the gospel, this is one of the things we cherish is that in being in Christ, I can be assured that, we, that I know this, that God is working all these things in me for his glory and for my good. But it's the opposite for the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot say, you know, everything works together for good in my life. The best things for unbelievers turn out to be for their ultimate harm. Donald Whitney said, For all eternity, those who reject Christ will wish forever they had never received the best blessings they ever got. The best things they receive in this life will prove that they don't acknowledge God for who He is or thank Him for it. And so what may be this huge windfall of perceived blessing could be a spiritual curse with a rejection for Christ of Christ. So what is the worst thing that ever happened to you? Oh, I bet we could hear some stories if we opened the mic and there was tra- full transparency. This happened to me as a child. This happened to me in my youth years. My college experience was marked by this. What's the worst thing? Death, suffering, violence, abuse. We know that even in things like that, that God is working all things together for good. I've heard the testimony of so many believers through the years. It was through my moral failure that I came to see that I could not save myself. It was through my addictions that I began to see I'm absolutely bankrupt to to, to change my life. And what they came to know in Jesus Christ was a deliverer and a savior and a redeemer. And they look back at those experiences as revealing what they needed most, God himself. The Lord God Almighty is a master of turning the miseries of this world into pure spiritual gold. Now, I need to remind you who's writing these words. This isn't pie in the sky, by and by stuff. This was written by the Apostle Paul. Do I need to remind you that five times he received 39 lashes each time? What's that, 195 times? He received a leather whip to his back by the Jews. Not, not to mention the, the blows to his back by the rods. Uh, he was stoned in Lystra. If you read Acts 14, it's amazing. He was stoned and left for dead. They thought he was dead. What's amazing to me when I read the life of the Apostle Paul is he got up and went back into town. I would have gone for the hills. He went back in. And so Romans 8, 31 through 39 really is a celebration of God's hand upon our lives. So when he says... In verse 31, what then shall we say to these things, these incredible blessings, these incredible promises, not to mention that golden chain we've spent a month on in verses 29 to 30. Douglas Moo, a faithful commentator, says, a call to celebrate our security in Christ makes for a natural conclusion that what Paul has been teaching in these chapters, he brings down to two primary reasons. One, the work of God for us in Christ and the love of God for us in Christ. This is how you cherish the gospel. 
as you think back of what God has done through his son. And then you think of the book of Romans, the, cherishing the gospel through the book of Romans. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. The power of God is revealed in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we have now been justified by his blood. We, we've been spared from the wrath of God. There's no condemnation on us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the by the death of his son. His grace reigns through righteousness. Therefore, it leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he will surely glorify us. What about these things, he says? That's how you cherish the gospel. I pray that you would bring that into your life. I was reminded of that so much this morning. I, I can't tell you how much I miss being with you last week. It's no fun watching on the live stream. All due respect. I just miss being on Pew One right here with the FBCG family. And I was reminded this morning of being able to gather with the church and to be reminded of who we are in Jesus Christ, that he would be our boast and our glory and how badly we need to show up and be reminded of his grace in our life with every failure, with every shortcoming, with every disappointment, with every single time we fall short of His glory, it's a reminder of how badly we need a Savior. And the sweet news of the gospel is, begin again, my child. I'm with you. I am for you. I will never leave you. Your sins and transgressions have been dealt with once and for all. And rightly understood that grace fuels godly living, not excuses to live the way you want to live. When you come to know and taste the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you begin to long to please Him in every, every area of your life, not looking for a loophole by which you live the way you want to live. He makes things new. We sing a, a song, Thank You, Jesus. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. And Jesus, thank you. Your Father's wrath completely satisfied. Thank you, Jesus. Secondly, as I look at 31 and 32, we're in a warfare in this world. I guess you didn't know that. Who can be against us, Paul says? If you'd allow me to kind of work this a little differently, I want to start with that, that idea. If God's for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? What's the answer to that? A lot of people. A lot of forces. Three great enemies of the Christian are what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is that system that is against God's authority and order. The world is against us because Christianity is an offense to it. Jesus said, don't marvel that they've treated me this way. They're going to treat you this way. If you'll follow me, the world will get us to conform. If it can, failing that, it will try to do us in. So we have the world. We have our own flesh, don't we? We have our own heart issues. Um, we're, we're, we're commanded to guard our heart, that our heart is desperately wicked. We shouldn't trust it. The worst advice you could ever give or hear is trust your heart. Don't ever tell somebody that. Our heart is desperately wicked. We have our own flesh. We know we should do this, but we end up doing this. 
And we understand why Paul wrote in Romans 7, the thing that I should do, I don't do that. The thing I should avoid, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. And how did he resolve this tension? Praise be to God for Jesus Christ, who is powerful. And the Christian life is really a walk of putting off the flesh and putting on Jesus Christ every single day. And then the devil. There are spiritual forces that are at work in this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. We have a powerful enemy, a relentless enemy in Satan who is described by the Apostle Peter as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Plenty of forces. Who, who could be against us? Lots of people. Enemies out there who are against us and, and there is even an enemy within. Paul has shown how God has set his love upon us and that he is for us. If God is for us, which leads me thirdly, how can I know that God's for me? I know many struggle with this because circumstances come into our life, whether your locker won't open or your car won't start or your marriage is sour or you're unemployed because you got fired or, or, or you got a cancer diagnosis. If God is for us, who can be against us? How can you know that God is for you? How do you know if he supports you or not? If you, if you want to get married and nothing ever works out, is God against you? If you marry the person of your dreams, is God for you? If the person, uh, if you marry the person of your dreams, is God for you? What if the marriage breaks, breaks apart? Is God against you? What if you want children and you can't have any? Is God against you? What if you have many children? Is he for you? What if you lose your job? Is he against you? What if you're successful beyond your wildest imagination and you've got this dream career? Does that mean he's for you? Financial difficulties, is he against you? Or do you, have you, you receive a great financial windfall? Does that mean he's for you? If you receive a cancer diagnosis, does that mean he's against you? What if you have magnificent health and you have to hold back boasting that every time you get the blood panels, all yours are right where they need to be? Does that mean he's for you? What if your life is filled with one endless challenge and struggle after another? Does that mean he's against you? I think that there's a a lot of pastoral power in those questions that I, I want to try to help set the record straight. How do we know? Well, none of these things that I mentioned, your relationship, your job, your finances, your health, or your circumstances are, are any indication one way or the other that God is against you or for you. We can be in danger of the, of the era of Asaph in Psalm 73. And I want to have you turn there as a sidebar this morning. Psalm 73, this great psalm of Asaph. I remember the first time I read Psalm 73, 
I was um, in seminary chapel, and I was just so excited to be a Christian, and man, I was actually going to a school where you could study the Bible full-time, and I actually went to chapel a lot. I couldn't believe it. We were having religious services at school and sat on on row two in the center section, right where Jeremy is right now, in the chapel in New Orleans, and I heard Psalm 73 for the first time. It came alive to me. Here's Asaph, who wrote a number of psalms, and he was a part of the music offered in the temple under King David. He begins with really the ending, truly God is good to Israel and to those who have a pure heart. And that's really where it ends, but he says, hold on, before, before we land on that, I, I want to just take you on a little journey. It wasn't always so. He says in verse 2, my, my steps nearly slipped. I, I had stepped on one of life's banana peels and I was reeling and I began to question what it means to follow the Lord faithfully. And I began to look, he became envious of the arrogant. What does that mean? He was looking around and saying, you know, Lord, I'm trying to live a pure life. I'm trying to, to live a life that honors you. And I'm looking around at these arrogant people who care, could care less about you and your ways and your word. And they seem to be doing just fine. He says in, in verse 4, they don't seem to have any pangs in their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That was a compliment. They're trouble. They're not in trouble like other people are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're pride. They're pride. They wear their pride like a necklace in their life. Verse six tells us, their eyes are swollen through fatness. Their heart overflows with foolishness. With all of their prosperities, they spend their time and energy on things that are just follies. They set their mouth against the heavens. They mock. They, they mock me, Lord. They set their mouths against the heavens, their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, your people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Your God doesn't know anything. You feel the weight of this? He says in verse 13, and here's his slide spiritually, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. I've done all this in Lord, Lord in vain. I've washed my hands in innocence. And then he kind of scratches a place off in the dirt and he says, if I had said I will speak thus, I, will, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, verses 16 and 17 kind of is the turning point. I mean, this guy's in, he's reeling. And he says in verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And here's what made the difference, friends. If you want to, Proof text for why you need to come to church. Verse 17 is the one. It wasn't until I went into the sanctuary of God that I saw their end. It wasn't until I worshiped that I saw what an idiot I had been. In fact, he calls himself a, a, a beast. He, he speaks of himself as a, as a, as a, uh, as a beast. That they, they, were fall, they were in slippery places. And verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, Lord. How could I ever think that you were not for me? How could I ever become jealous of anyone who, in this world, 
when you are my portion forever. And that's how it ends. He says in verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's no one on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So he, he begins where he really ends. Truly, God is good to me. I think of this when I look at Romans 8. Psalm 73 just seemed to jump to my attention. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now back to Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want to just say a word about that first phrase. If God is for us, this is, this is presented in a, in a powerful Greek tense that I know you rose early to hear about. And that word if, in the English language, it could be maybe, maybe not. But in the Greek, it's a first-class conditional sentence, which means a certainty. It could rightly be interpreted, since God is for us. It's the same kind of conditional sentence that was used in the temptation of Jesus. When Satan comes to him and he says, if you are the Son of God, it could rightly be interpreted, since you are the Son of God. He knew who he was. He knew that he could turn stones into bread. So Paul is saying here, since God is for us, who in the world can be against us? This condition of the first class, A.T. Robertson wrote, carries Paul's challenge to all doubters. There is no one on par with God. He is for us. And it's not based upon our circumstances. You, 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 you do realize we're not getting out of this thing alive. You, you know that, don't you? Let's just be real. We're not getting out of this thing alive. So I don't know what may be the cause of your death, and I don't sit around pondering what may be the cause of mine. But I know one day I will draw my last breath in this world, and so will you. And what's most important on that day is, do I know Christ? Is He my Lord and my Savior? Is He my hope and stay? So now, meanwhile, back to the circumstances. If I'm in Christ, if I'm in Christ, it doesn't matter what circumstance I face. Whether I'm beaten 195 times with a, with a whip, multiple times with a rod, whether I'm a night and the day and the deep, whether I receive a cancer diagnosis, whether I go bankrupt, whatever circumstances is not God's indication on whether He's for me or against me. In Christ, He's always for me. He's for me in my failures. He's for me in my weaknesses. That's all I have to offer Him, really, is brokenness and strife. Huh? But His grace is what rescues us. His grace is what gives us a standing that no matter what we may face in this world, He is for us. He is for us indeed. Do you feel the weight of that? Since He's for you, believer, what in the world can be against you? What's Paul getting at with an answer? Nada. No one. And so the solid logic of heaven, verse 32 
Years ago, I was helped in, by John Piper in, this, in his book, Future Grace. This, he had a title entitled, entitled the, the, the Solid Logic of Heaven, and that has stayed with me all these years. The Solid Logic Behind God's Promises. Why you, believer, need to really think seriously in not only cherish, cherishing the gospel, but also thinking about God's promises. And it's based on this solid logic in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In light of that, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things, believer? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. In light of God giving his son, why would we stress or fret about anything else? Because he's for me. Whether I'm cancer-free or shot through with it. Whether I have thousands in the bank or pennies. My circumstance in this life is not the basis by which God shows his love and favor toward me. It's in Jesus Christ. Piper writes about this argument of the greater to the lesser. Suppose you say to your child, please run next door and ask Mr. Smith if, if we can borrow his pliers. And your child says, but what if Mr. Smith doesn't want us to borrow his, his pliers? And your argument from the greater to the lesser could be to your child, well, yesterday Mr. Smith was happy to let me borrow his car all day long. If he, has, if he was happy for me to borrow his car, he'll be very willing for us to borrow his pliers. Because loaning your car is a greater sacrifice than loaning pliers. Therefore, it is harder to loan your car than to loan your pliers. If he was inclined to do the harder thing, then he will be inclined to do the easier thing. That's the way we use the greater to lesser arguments. So here in verse 32, and this is the solid logic of, uh, of heaven for you, believer. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the harder thing. Therefore, he will most certainly give us all things with him. That's the easier thing. We can count on that all the way until we see him. So how do we respond to this grace of God in our life? How do we respond to this? We're entering into a time now called responding in faith. How do I respond to faith to this solid logic of heaven that God has given his, his son and that I can know eternal life in him and through him? Well, first of all, we need to understand that nothing we do can make us innocent before God. Nothing we can do can make us not guilty of deserving his wrath, but God can save us. And he saves us through the work of his son. So how do I need to respond to this good news? Responding in faith as we come to the end of this worship service and any worship service we ever have together is responding in faith to Jesus. That you receive him for who he is. That you agree with the Bible on how he's described and how he's presented namely as the Son of God, and that you would trust Him personally. Trust Him personally. That's vital. Amen. To trust Jesus Christ personally. Your mother can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. You must come face to face with, are these claims true? And if they are, 
Lord, I acknowledge my sin. I come to see the good news that God did not spare you, but gave you in order to die, that my, my sins would be forgiven. I receive that. I trust you. I turn from my sins and I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a first response, responding in faith in that way. And then to trust God's power to work in you and through you, to walk with Jesus Christ, to live the Christian life is a day-to-day -day surrender to Him. If you're treating it like you treat an inoculation, you're going to be disoriented. Well, I got the anecdote a long time ago, but, you know, don't ever think about it. That's not the way to view salvation. Salvation is a daily walk with Christ every day, surrendering to Him in obedience, following Him as He commands us to follow Him. And then thirdly would be, I need to rest in His promises that He loves me and is for me. I'm, I, I'm taking this... The, these verses in Romans 8, 31 to 32, that's not just preacher talk. This is for me. This is for my life. If God is for me, take this into your problem right now in Christ. If God is for me, who can be against me? Can you think of anything greater than for you to know that? And to stand on that, I cannot. That's priceless. A lot of people are paying a lot of money to counselors to get what I just told you. And it's free. It's the free, well-meant offer of the gospel for you in real time right now. If you would come. If you would come to Him on His terms. Why don't you do that right now? Let's bow together. Honestly, Lord, it's, it's hard to imagine anything more valuable than to know that you're for us. And it's not based on our circumstances. It's based upon Christ. And our love and our devotion is to be given to him. Our surrender is to be yielded to him. And with it, there are no regrets. So I pray in these final moments of this service that you would do what only you can do in our hearts and that each one of us would yield to your promises. For the unbeliever, may they find hope in the gospel. May they find hope right now in their lives. For those reeling from difficult circumstances, may they be reminded that in Christ, you're for me. What else do I need than to know that, Lord? And so we pray for this closing time that it would be blessed as we yield to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart.